compost grows your soil. It restores soil biology by adding beneficial fungi, bacteria, earthworms, all those good little buggies that are down in your soil. It improves the soil structure for better root penetration and water retention. It also provides nutrients for your plants to a certain extent. Hey, I'm Karen, and together with my husband, I spent over a decade researching and learning and building our small farm through lots of trial and error, successes and failures. I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture to help our farm business, and now I want to pass all that knowledge on to you. Because I firmly believe that self-reliance is empowering, and that everyone, whether you've got a five-acre plot in the country, a half-acre lot in suburbia, or a windowless room in a downtown apartment, should just grow something. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. This is episode 13, lucky number 13, and it is my lucky number. I've always liked the number 13 for some reason. And no, I'm not into all this, you know, spooky, scary, creepy, you know, movies and stuff like that. I just, for some reason, have always been attracted to the number 13. So this should be a good episode for everybody. Uh, this Focal Point Friday, we're going to focus on sustainable practices for gardening and landscaping. And actually, this will also be next Friday's Focal Point Friday episode as well, because I feel like it needs to be broken up into two different episodes because there are a lot of points that need to be covered, and I don't want to skim past any of the important bits. Uh, so two little fun facts for you. I actually while I was in school, had a secondary major in sustainability. I didn't finish that because, I mean, honestly, I was just anxious to graduate because when you're farming full-time and you're also trying to go to school full-time, it's really exhausting. And I just wanted to be done <laughs> at that point. Um, I can actually go back at this point and get my sustainability degree if I want to. And I will probably do that at some point. Um, but it's a it's a, a topic that has always interested me. It is something that we are very um, concerned with on this farm. We practice sustainable practices as much as we can here. And it's something that I talk to people about a lot in their own gardens and in their own landscapes. Speaking of landscapes, that's point number two. I am not a landscape designer. Let's just be very clear about that right now. I have a really funky aesthetic when it comes to designing landscapes. I am that person who will put orange and red and purple flowers all together in the same bed, and I will love the heck out of it. So it's not something that I do for clients. It's, it's um, don't hand me a color wheel because I will just trash it. But Landscaping is something that I did have to focus on for part of my studies um, at Oregon State. And uh, so I do know the right tree in the right place and what plants do well in what environment and in soil types and that sort of thing. So I, I am very well versed in the technical portion of landscaping. Just don't ask me to design your space because that's not going to end well for anybody. So um, let's dig in to sustainable practices for gardening and landscaping. There's not much better than looking out first thing on a sunny morning, gazing at my garden beds over a hot cup of coffee. As U.S. Marines, my husband and I drank a lot of coffee. As farmers, 
now let's just say we should probably drink more water. The coffee we drink these days still has a military tie. We have freshly roasted coffee shipped to us every few weeks from Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle is a veteran-owned business, just like ours, but they serve up premium coffee and ship it around the world. When you join their coffee club, your chosen brew is roasted, packaged, and shipped free to your door on whatever schedule you choose. And with every purchase, they're giving back to military veterans and active duty, law enforcement, and first responders. Ready to check them out? Go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash coffee to save 20% when you join the Black Rifle Coffee Club. No commitments. Cancel any time. That's justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash coffee for 20% off your coffee club subscription. So let's talk about what does sustainable actually mean, right? So there's a couple of different ways that you can define sustainable. So to sustain means to keep going or to continue. And sustainable is the ability to carry on an activity indefinitely with minimal impact on the environment. If you look at the Sustainable Sites Initiative, they will say, and I quote, sustainability is a way of living that meets the needs of the present without impacting the needs of the future. So think about that for a, just a second, and I'm going to repeat that because that's really impactful. And I think that really gets to the heart of what sustainability is, okay? Sustainability is a way of living that meets the needs of the present without impacting the needs of the future. So for us on our farm, we consider sustainable um, to have a bunch of different facets to it, right? Growing without the use of chemical pesticides or herbicides or chemical fertilizers, improving the ground that we're growing in and using as many natural beneficials as possible. Even though we are disturbing the sort of natural state of the ground, our intent behind that is to leave it as undisturbed as possible. And to make sure that we are impacting in a permanent way as little as possible so that if we were to just walk away, the ground would return to its natural state without too much of a fuss. So to us on our farm, that is what sustainable means. So when we're talking about gardening and landscaping, there are seven main sustainable practices that you can shoot for. And I will list all seven of these, but we will likely only go through probably the first three or four of them in this episode. And then uh, next Friday, we will finish up the rest of the list. So those seven sustainable practices are number one, landscape for your local climate. Number two, reduce waste and recycle. Three, nurture the soil, four, conserve water, five, plant heirlooms, six, practice responsible pest management, and seven, support the beneficial wildlife. 
You may already be practicing many or all of these seven practices. I think it's always helpful to be reminded, and there's always room for improvement. And so at the end of this episode and next episode, I just hope you'll be able to identify one or more changes or improvements that you might make in your gardening and your landscaping to make it more sustainable. So let's start with practice number one, landscaping for your local climate. So the first thing to think about with your landscaping is using plants that will thrive in the area that you are in, rather than trying to bring in plants from outside of your area that are going to require a lot of maintenance. One way to do this is by choosing native plants, plants that are native to your area. Choosing native plants allows developed landscapes to sort of coexist with their natural environment around them rather than competing with it. It means that they're going to be climate appropriate. So your local native plants are adapted to your climate and your soils. So they are a very sustainable solution for your landscaping. And there are some really beautiful native plants that are flowering and have beautiful foliage and that will give you that interest and that color all season long. You can plant mostly native perennial plants, um, which again, they come back every single year with very little maintenance. And then you can fill in with those other colorful annuals if you want to. It makes for a very, very interesting display. Native plants are very low maintenance. Some of these plants can live for many decades. They have displays that, like I said, are appealing for most of the year. They will tolerate a very wide range of light and moisture conditions. So they're very hands-off for the most part, as long as you're suiting or picking the natives that are suitable for your particular soil circumstances. If you grow them together, they will grow into these sort of dense groupings, which means they're going to choke out any weeds, which means you're not going to have to be pulling weeds, which means fewer weeds that are going to spread to the other areas of your lawn and your landscape. Compared to lawns and like mulched trees and shrubs and non-native perennial plantings, landscapes planted with the appropriate native plantings will require so much less maintenance. They also require very, very minimal watering, except during the time when you're establishing them and if you have a really, really severe drought. But other than that, I mean, most of these perennial natives have very deep tap roots. So you're not going to have to water these guys at all in a lot of a lot of situations. They also don't need any chemical fertilizers or pesticides. They are adapted for the area that you are in. So they have developed sort of resistance to all of these little bugs and stuff that are that are in your area unless you have some really weird invasive Um, insect that comes in that might decimate a native population. Um, In most instances, you are not going to have pest problems with your native plants. That makes them a really, really, really low maintenance option for your gardens. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, I was actually um, at the bank today and my the assistant manager of the bank branch asked me if I had any recommendations for an area in her yard that uh, is constantly wet. And I recommended to her five or six different native plants that are native to here that thrive in very wet conditions that also will help to reduce erosions in the, uh, erosion in that area. And uh, that will break up some of the really dense uh, soil that she's got right there. So, and again, it's very super low maintenance. She's not going to have to do anything. You get them planted, you get them established, and you just let them do their thing. They're also super, super beneficial for the native pollinators, which in turn will benefit your vegetable garden. So you bring those native pollinators in to feed off of the blooms of your native plantings, and they are going to automatically gravitate towards your vegetable garden, and they're going to pollinate there as well. So you, you get that added benefit. So practice number two was reduce waste and recycle. And a, a way that you can really reduce your yard waste is, is something that people don't really think a lot about is by good pruning of your very large bushes and your trees. So when pruning trees, you want to remove the whole branches, right? So this will control the growth. It will open the tree up for really good air circulation, and it will allow the light to come in versus just pruning the growing tips of a tree, which encourages the tree to send out multiple sprouts, right? So this is going to actually give you more growth on those tips where you've just pruned, and that's going to create more trimmings. So if you prune the correct way where you're removing those whole branches, you're actually reducing the volume of trimmings that you're going to have, which is also going to reduce your workload. Another way to reduce your waste and recycle in your garden is to downsize or eliminate your lawn to reduce the amount of clippings. It's kind of an astonishing number. The average lawn produces about 300 to 400 pounds of clippings per year. 300 to 400 pounds of just grass clippings. And those grass clippings constitute about half of the green waste that ends up in landfills. Now, first of all, as far as I'm concerned, green waste shouldn't be ending up in landfills at all. But if you think about it, half of that green waste is grass clippings. Now, I understand the desire for lawns because having had six kids, I get it. You need a place for them to play. You need a place for entertaining. And that's fine. That's fabulous. But Plants grouped into beds are going to require less care than individual specimens kind of spread throughout your yard. So that's going to reduce the need for mowing in and around these sort of individual specimens. So group your plantings together in sort of these mass plantings and then leave your open spaces where you want them rather than having these wide open spaces and then putting a, a tree here and putting a bush here and putting some, you know, a group of flowers here, clump them together. That's going to help a little bit. And again, use natives as your main planting, right? That's going to help. And then add your favorite annuals sort of as a border 
And then so for what does need to be mowed, allow those mulch clippings to fall on the grass and decompose, right? Get your, make sure that your, your lawn mower is a mulching lawn mower um, and allow those grass clippings to just lay there instead of raking them all up and putting them into bags and then throwing them into the regular garbage. This is uh, going to not only reduce waste, but it's going to feed your lawn and it's going to conserve water. You can also look for alternative grasses to turf grass. If you're not set on having your lawn look like a golf course, you can look at different types of grasses like buffalo grass. There's even sedums that you can use to seed your lawn or to populate your lawn. In fact, that's what we've got going on in our backyard right now. I didn't do it intentionally, honestly, but I'm super glad that it has happened. I had a a sedum of some sort escape one of my planting beds. And I'm not even sure how it happened, but it is taking over my backyard area. And I'm using air bunnies for yard because it's not really a landscaped yard. It's sort of a haphazard lawn-ish area. Um, but this sedum has taken over. It looks very much like grass, but it's it's thicker. Uh, and it is super, super soft. It doesn't need any water whatsoever. It's beautiful. It's very deep rooted. And so it, again, it doesn't need any watering. Uh, there's other things that you can use instead of a lawn. There are low growing, uh, thyme, as in thyme, the herb. There are sprawling versions of that that can be walked on, that can be mowed, and they will, you know, take that abuse and they smell fabulous. Um, they don't necessarily need to be mowed. You can just walk over them and they'll continue to sprawl and they're not going to get out of control. Um, there are other types of grasses that provide a really wonderful look and feel, but they require half or less of the water than traditional turf grasses. So that's another way to sort of reduce um, your, your waste there. Uh, one more way is to collect your green waste and compost or mulch it on site. It, use all of your waste to compost, and that will totally improve the health of your soil. You will have that ready-made compost to put into your vegetable gardens. And there are so many different ways to compost. It, get out of your head you know, that, that stinky sort of weird pile that goes in the back corner of the yard that we are past those days. There are compost tumblers. There are containers. There are all different sorts of ways that you can compost in uh, a suburban environment, in an urban environment where it's not going to bug the neighbors. It's not going to bug you. It's not going to stink. It's not going to attract vermin or, you know, any bugs or anything else. It's super clean ways to be able to compost all of your green waste. Um, just make sure that you're kind of maintaining a mixture of about 50% browns and 50% greens. Uh, so browns being your sort of uh, dead leaves and your uh, you know wood chips and twigs and that sort of thing. And then your greens, which are your grass clippings and your garden scraps. Um, mix those really, really well together and just keep them as moist as like a wrung out sponge. So not sopping wet, but not bone dry and turn them regularly. And you will have beautiful compost 
to be able to add back into your landscape beds and into your garden beds to kind of complete that cycle. There is absolutely no reason for these things to end up in a landfill. If you really don't want to compost, that's totally fine. But most cities um, will have a composting system or or initiative set up, whether it's city composting, either they come and pick it up or you can go and drop it off. There are also uh, farms. You can look for a local farm near you that will take those uh, waste items from you. Um, just keeping it out of the landfill is a, is a much more sustainable way to deal with um, those items rather than just tossing them into the garbage. So the last part of the reduce waste and recycle section is uh, reusing materials as a part of sustainability. Um, use as many recycled materials in your gardens and your landscaping as possible. And you can be sort of creative with this and you will oftentimes end up with really beautiful um, landscapes. So broken concrete, right? You can turn that into retaining walls for planting areas. Glass bottles make really beautiful edging and pathways. Tires, old tires can be painted and made into planters instead of being tossed in a landfill. Uh, just make sure with that that you are using them as planters for non-edibles. I don't ever recommend planting um, vegetables or edible flowers in um, tires because of the possibility of chemicals and stuff leaching out of that. But they make great planting beds for um, flowers. And the possibilities are endless when it comes to recycling things uh, in your gardens and in your landscape. So practice number three, nurture the soil. And if you are a vegetable gardener, you're probably already pretty much aware of this, um, but you may not necessarily know exactly what um, good soil is, what's it, what it's it comprised of. Soil with good structure for plant growth is about 25% air, 25% water, 45% mineral matter, and only about 5% organic matter. But that 5% is super important in holding water and making space for air. And the quality of the organic material is extremely important for plants to thrive. One of the ways that you nurture the soil is to add compost. Of course, we already talked about making your own compost. And if you've listened to any of the previous episodes, you know I mention compost all the time. Compost grows your soil. It restores soil biology by adding beneficial fungi, bacteria, earthworms, all those good little buggies that are down in your soil. It improves the soil structure for better root penetration and water retention. It also provides nutrients for your plants to a certain extent. If you can't produce enough compost yourself, uh, you could absolutely purchase it in bags or in bulk um, from local garden supply sources. You may have a, uh, a composting company that may provide it for you. Uh, we actually have two to three 20 cubic yard truckloads of compost delivered to the farm uh, every season, in addition to the compost that we just do 
on our own. So that's how um, convinced we are that compost is the best way to nurture your soil, especially if you are growing things in it that require a lot of nutrients and they're sucking a lot of that out of the soil. Compost is a really good way to add that soil matter back into uh, the soil where it's been depleted, it's, you're not necessarily adding nutrients, but you are adding the components that will help retain nutrients and will also encourage that soil biota to do its thing, which also, again, adds nutrients. Uh, think about uh, earthworms and uh, what they leave behind. The frass that they leave behind is super high in nutrients. So uh, compost will absolutely encourage that. Uh, another way to nurture the soil is to add organic mulch. We've talked about mulch a couple of different times. Um, organic mulches decompose over time to help enrich the soil, and they also conserve water by decreasing the evaporation and the runoff and by reducing erosion. Um, they also prevent compaction. It evens out the soil temperatures. It's, it suppresses weeds. Like I can't say enough about mulch. Using mulch... Um, reduces both the plant stress and the gardener stress. Um, just note here that when you're talking about landscaping beds, right, putting weed cloth or landscape fabric underneath your mulch is not going to nurture your soil. So I know we've talked uh, in a previous episode, in the weeding episode, about using um you know, landscape fabric, and then also mulching on top of that to help prevent weeds in your vegetable garden beds. And yes, that's absolutely, uh, you know, a, a way to do that to keep the, the, the soil moisture in and to keep the weeds out. But that's with the understanding that you're going to pull that landscape fabric back at the end of the season. So you're allowing moisture, you're allowing um, air back into that soil. If we're talking about landscaping beds and your flower beds, you do not want to put something that's that permanent at the bottom before you add the mulch. Um, it's going to um, it's not going to nurture your soil, not having that contact with your soil. So if you have a heavy enough layer of mulch, you shouldn't really have a need for uh, the landscape fabric or weed cloth underneath it. So long as you are refreshing that mulch every year or two. So a really thick layer the first year and then you know a thinner layer just to kind of refresh it uh, every year after that. There is one little negative about mulch, especially if you're planting native plants. It does discourage those ground nesting bees. And that might not seem like a really big deal, but ground nesting bees are actually some of the best native pollinators in a lot of areas, especially if you have prairie areas anywhere near you. So Kansas, anywhere in the Midwest, uh, ground nesting bees are super important as pollinators. If you're a vegetable gardener and you want that pollination, those ground nesting bees 
um, are a really good way for that. You know, the European honeybee gets a whole lot of credit for a whole lot of stuff, but I am a huge fan of native bees for doing a much better job at pollinating um, your, your plants. Try to get mulches that haven't been treated with chemicals. Um, if you can find organic mulches or things that are listed that say they haven't been sprayed with anything, and that'll help um, prevent some of the the problems that you'll have with some of your native pollinators. Um, but yeah, you know, ground nesting bees have a hard time getting through that mulch. So you may just leave an area that is unmulched that is specific to them. If you're having a lack of pollinators, that might help a little bit. And we'll, we'll, I'll probably do a whole episode on native pollinators because I just find them so fascinating. And I actually took an entire class and did a thesis on it. And, uh, and I love them. They're very, very cool. So we'll, we'll, we'll die, uh, dig deeper into those in another episode. But um, another way to nurture your soil is to protect the soil from compaction and erosion. What it boils down to is try not to walk on your planting soils, especially when they're wet. That that airspace that is in your soils that is essential for both air and water retention has a tendency to disappear if you're walking on them. Um, if you have to step into your beds, you can use boards or tiles or any other flat material um, to distribute your weight, and that will prevent the compaction in those planting beds. You also always want to protect any slopes from being eroded by heavy rains. So if you plant really densely in any areas that slope with plants that have really deep root systems, again, going back to those native plants, native plants usually have very deep tap roots and they will hold that soil in place. So when you do have heavy rains, you're not going to have that soil washing away. This goes right back to the conversation that I had with the assistant manager at our bank branch. Um, she was trying to prevent that erosion. And I recommended to her those, those uh, native plants for landscaping, um, deep roots, holds onto the soil. And again, you know, you don't really need to water them. Um, they're going to prevent that erosion. Um, so uh, really another really good way to, uh, to nurture the soil there. Another way to nurture the soil is to plant cover crops that fix nitrogen and add organic matter to the soil. Uh, we'll talk about this in depth um, a little bit later on, but this is something that we use uh, in our garden beds to uh, help suppress weeds, to build productive soil, and to help control pests and diseases. Cover crops are also referred to as green manure. Um, Low-growing cover crops can be planted under taller plants to help control weeds while they're adding nutrients. So think things like clover. Clover is a legume. It actually helps to fix nitrogen into the soil. You can plant a low-growing clover underneath taller plants, either in your garden, your vegetable garden, or in your landscape areas uh, to help with that. You can plant taller cover crops like oats, around perennial fruits like strawberries. And so if you have your strawberry production and then you plant these oats at the end of the season or towards the end of the season, 
give them a chance to be able to grow up and over those strawberries. And then they will winter kill essentially. So as soon as the first frost or hard freeze hits, they're going to die and they're going to fall over and they're going to act as a natural mulch over the winter. So they're going to protect the soil. They're going to protect your strawberries. And it's all without you having to do anything other than just throw some oat seeds out there. Um, you can plant cover crops after harvesting in the fall to keep the soil from eroding, to choke out weed seeds, and to fix nutrients back into the ground. Um, you're going to want to kill cover crops before they set seed, so it just, which basically is just mowing them down. Otherwise, they're going to reseed themselves and you're going to end up with, uh, with more cover crop than, than what you anticipated because they will come back. <laughs> so just mow them down. Um, you just wait a day or two until the leaves and the stems dry down and then you just sort of dig them in or turn them in. Uh, you wait about two weeks and then you plant your vegetables or your flowers. Um, or don't turn them in and just plant straight into them and then just use it as a natural mulch to control weed. There are so many um, different versions of cover crops that have sort of a dual purpose of, you know, fixing nutrients and protecting the soil and preventing weeds and retaining moisture. Um, a couple of the most popular ones really are a combination of field peas and oats. This is a really dynamic duo. It combines the benefits of the legume, which is the peas, which, and that the, those fix nitrogen into the soil, and a grain, which is the oats, and that contributes plenty of organic matter. The plants have a complementary growth habit. The peas climb right up the oats, and they're, both of those crops are cold tolerant. So it makes it a good mixture to plant in the late summer or the early fall. And in, like I said, in colder climates like in ours, um, they also winter kill. So they'll be done. They'll just be laying there as a protective mulch over the winter time. And then you can get an early spring start by just planting right into that dead kind of matter that's sitting there. Um, buckwheat, uh, it's not a wheat and it's not a little rascal's character. <laughs> buckwheat is a broadleaf plant and it is an excellent smother crop. It's effective even against weeds like quack grass, which people have a, a huge problem with. It's very fast growing. It can provide a quick canopy to shade weeds. Um, it's actually um, something that, you know, can be used um, in the summer. You just have to be careful not to let it go to seed or you will have buckwheat in your next crop. Um, it only takes about six to eight weeks to mature. So you can kind of squeeze it in between a spring and fall vegetable planting if, you've got, if your bed is going to be um, vacant for that time. Um, they've got these cute little white flowers, so you can actually cut them as a filler for, um, flower arrangements. It's super cute. And they also attract beneficial insects. So just let the buckwheat grow and do its thing in between crops and then mow it down and just let that, you know, that mowing lay there and it acts as a natural mulch again. Um, so plant your spring crop. Once you harvest that, throw some buckwheat out there, uh, six to eight weeks, mow it down, let it lay there, and then plant your fall vegetable plantings, um, which is what we do, 
Um, and that way you're not having, you know, areas in your vegetable garden that are open. The soil is open to being eroded or being blown away by the wind or heaven forbid being a beautiful place for weed seeds to land and, uh, and start to, uh, to pop up. Um, another, the last kind of most popular, uh, cover crop, that is really good for nurturing the soil is clover. Um, clover comes in a plethora of different shapes and sizes. White Dutch clover uh, works well as a living mulch. It tolerates both shade and traffic. Um, we actually have some white Dutch clover in an area um, another area actually of our backyard. Um, and it works just fine rather than using it as uh, or rather than having grass in that area. Um, yellow blossom sweet clover is an excellent nutrient scavenger and it helps to build good soil structure. And then crimson clover attracts beneficials and it looks great too. Whatever the color, clover fixes nitrogen into the soil and it helps build rich soils. So, um, you know, again, cover crops, another really good way to nurture the soil. Uh, and then finally in the, uh, the nurturing the soil category, you want to fertilize correctly to protect your soil, right? If you continually feed your soil um, with compost and you grow nitrogen-fixing cover crops, you actually probably won't need to fertilize too much. Um, but some of these things are, are admittedly hard to do in smaller garden areas. So if you do need to fertilize, a naturally derived fertilizer will feed your plants slowly over time while maintaining good soil biology. And we're talking about fungi and earthworms and other really beneficial organisms. Synthetic inorganic fertilizers might be less expensive, but if they are misused, um, you can have this sort of contaminating runoff. Um, you can damage soil microbes. You can cause a flush of tender new plant growth that is really attractive to those sucking insects, um, but maybe not so beneficial to your plants. You know, some examples of naturally derived fertilizers, fish meal, bone meal, blood meal, those are really good ones to use. Um, if you do choose a synthetic fertilizer, use a slow release one that releases only small amounts of nutrients um, with each watering. There's these little synthetic pellets that you can kind of shake around uh, that are only going to release a little bit at a time. So it's not going to overwhelm the plant. It's not going to overwhelm your soil. Uh, I have to tell you on a larger scale, and this isn't as much of a concern for for small home gardeners, but it is a situation or an issue that you know, everybody needs to be aware of, you know, the overuse of synthetic chemical fertilizers is actually a really big sustainability issue. Um, if you are fertilizing, and I don't mean you, if, if farmers, um, and this is really, you know, more focused on commodity crop farmers that are growing thousands and thousands of acres of corn or soy or wheat, um, and are, fertilizing on a, a regular basis with chemical fertilizers. They're fertilizing on a schedule. Um, they're not doing a lot in the off season to build that soil fertility back up again. They're solely relying on these chemical fertilizers. And what happens is if there is an excess of 
those fertilizers, specifically nitrogen, um, that the plants can't take up, then it sits there in the soil. And when the soil becomes overwhelmed with that excess fertilizer, then it leaches out and it leaches into the watersheds and into the water table and then into the, uh, the streams and eventually into rivers. And it will um, gather in places like the Mississippi River and it will head south into the Gulf of Mexico. And then we see these huge algal blooms um, when the, the water heats up because there is so much nitrogen in the water um, that it, uh, it begins to grow. And these algae come and they feed on the, uh, the nitrogen and they essentially take up all of the oxygen in the water in, in the Gulf of Mexico. And what that does is it chokes out the other natural aquatic life that usually resides there. And so those fish and those aquatic life actually have to leave the Gulf um, or die because there is not enough oxygen left. And you can actually see these algal blooms from space. You can take pictures of them and you can, I mean, seriously, you can go out and just Google um, algal blooms um, and you'll see these pictures of, of what happens when all of this fertilizer sort of makes its way down into the Gulf. And it's, it's just super disruptive to uh, not just the biological life in the Gulf, but it's also disrupted to the fishing industry. It's disrupted to the livelihoods that are made from um, the residents that live on the Gulf and uh, and fish for a living. It's there are so many compounding factors that go along with um, synthetic fertilizers, and it's unfortunate because there are alternatives. And so, if we can even just start at a small level with individual gardeners. Um, not just with the synthetic fertilizers, but with every um, one of these practices that we just talked about with regards to sustainability, um, then we can make an actual difference in kind of reversing some of these, um, these problems. So I'm going to stop right there for now. Um, I think we've dug a little bit uh, deep enough into those subjects. Um, those first three sustainable practices, landscaping for local climate, reducing waste and recycling, and nurturing the soil. And we will save the final four, conserving water, planting heirlooms, practicing responsible pest management, and supporting beneficial wildlife for next Friday's Focal Point Friday episode. And between now and then, I I will have another Garden Talk Tuesday episode. Um, in the meantime, uh, think about your gardening questions. Don't forget to send those to me. We will have our next Can You Dig It episode the first Friday in May, and I would love to answer some more gardening questions for you and enter you into the drawing to receive a Clyde's Garden Planner. Um, in other news, we now have an Instagram page. Um, as a matter of fact, I actually had <laughs> reserved the Instagram name of Just Grow Something podcast a while back, but I hadn't done anything with it because I just wanted to make sure we had it for when I had time to do something. And uh, one of my wonderful listeners and a CSA member of our farm, Heather, had already gone out there and found that page and subscribed <laughs> or uh, followed uh, when there was nothing. There wasn't even 
a profile image out there. It was just the name. So thank you, Heather, for giving me the kick in the butt to go ahead and do something with that page. So yes, the Instagram uh, profile is live. If you want to go out and follow us, I'm going to uh, continue sort of updating it. I've only got a few posts out there just yet, but uh, but I'm working on it. So um, I appreciate you coming along and listening today. And uh, I hope you'll come back on Tuesday for the next Garden Talk Tuesday episode. And in the meantime, keep on cultivating that dream garden of yours, my gardening friends, and I will talk to you soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. I hope these episodes are helping you understand more about how to grow your own food and maybe growing an awareness of food issues in general. Just remember, no matter where you live or what you have, you can absolutely grow something. Um.